I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. This is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And I am super jazzed to have my special guest today, Mr. Josh Corda, um, who is coming to us live from New York today. New York Brooklyn, City, New Brooklyn, York. Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Josh, for being with me. Um, let me read your bio really quick before we jump into this conversation, just to give some background, because you do some really amazing work. Um, Josh Corda is the guiding teacher at Dharma Punks, New York. He offers spiritual counseling to a large group of individuals. He writes for Wisdom Publications, Lion's Roar, Tricycle, Huffington Post, and other periodicals. His teachings blend traditional Theravada and Dharmic practices with modern neuroscience, contemporary psychology, and a lifelong outlier attitude. Sir, you are one that's right up my alley. I'm so jazzed to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. So, I mean, as I said before we started recording, I've been following you on Facebook for quite a while. Um, you are an exceptionally intelligent, well-versed person in your uh, fields of study. At least that's my takeaway from you know reading your posts, listening to your podcast. So I am super jazzed to have you on the show and have you share some of your uh, wisdom with us. Uh, I figured, though, let's start, if you don't mind, at the beginning, because I know in a recent email interaction, you had mentioned you were roughly or 23 years sober now, which is amazing. Congratulations. But, but let's go back, like, even before that, you know, Josh, growing up, like, if you want to talk a little bit about what you know, what was your introduction to the spiritual path? What prior to that, you know, were you into punk rock, like hardcore, like Noah? Like, I'd love to learn more about you as a person. So feel free to go anywhere you'd like with that. So I was born in the birth of the 60s in the Upper West Side. Well, the hospital wasn't the Upper West Side, but that's where we lived near Harlem. And my father was a artist, uh, very unhappy at his job, mm. 
but he was uh, also a very, at the time, a very violent alcoholic with really unreliable emotional and behavioral uh, tendencies. Sure. I wouldn't even call them tendencies because they were so unreliable. He just, in the day, he would be a very uh, funny kind of hardworking guy, but at night he would transform into one of those people who has bottled up so much anger from their own childhood, his own repressive Russian upbringing, and he would take it out on people around him. In fact, when my mom was pregnant with me, my dad was in the hospital uh, in a coma from a, uh, or at least a long-term unconscious state from a bar fight. Wow. Uh, my mom was a Jewish immigrant uh, from the sort of Belarus-Polish region. She grew up in complete poverty, climbed her way up to be a writer in the advertising business, and was in love with Freud mm. and uh, the existentialist Sartre, Camus, de Beauvoir. Etc. Right. So, <clears throat> cut uh, the first twelve years was mayhem. Uh, my mom kind of solved the drama in the family system by she couldn't actually herself create a reliable, uh, secure attachment, but she did uh, <clears throat> get me into therapy very young. I think as young as seven. Yeah. And so I did have some of the corrective emotional experience that allowed me to feel secure with just enough secure with people that I didn't wind up, you know, just essentially living a low bottom life. And that was it. Yeah. My dad got sober when I was 12. And due to his Russian upbringing, he was horrified by any spiritual path that required believing in a god mm. his all of our conceptions of god originally stem from our views of our caregivers they are our gods when we're infants so if sure. your caregiver is kind of a monster then you'll have a kind of monstrous view of god yeah so he to, to be sober in AA, his sponsor said he had to have a higher power. So my dad did what a, uh, a jazz-loving, art-loving guy would do. He embraced Zen Buddhism. Sure. And because um, that was pretty hardcore. Yeah. And all of the uh, musicians, or a lot of the musicians, not by any means all, but a lot of musicians and artists at the time were embracing Zen. It was in the air of the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, certainly, people like Ramdas and others were bringing Jack Cornfield, you know, so many were bringing Buddhist practice, Houston Smith, bringing Buddhist practice to America. So it was becoming far more acceptable. And so his way of uh, feeling confident in Buddhism was to drag me, a 12-year-old, who was kind of terrified of him at the time, to uh, Buddhist gatherings. Yeah. So I saw a lot of 
in retrospect, pretty important Buddhist from the Rinpoche. Wow. Yeah, but who wasn't exactly what you would call sober at the time. <laughs> Rarely was he, it seems. But yeah. uh, well, cr- my dad <laughs> exited feeling pissed because my dad was newly sober, and I think he sort of felt, well, hell, if I if I knew I could stay drunk and be a Buddhist, I don't know that I if there, you know, yeah. he sort of felt cheated. But anyway, uh, yeah. I, so my teen life was bookshelves filled with. Buddhist books that my dad never bothered to read, but believed if he had them would somehow impart their wisdom, you know, somehow just by vibes coming out of the book. My mom was an avid reader, and she had bookshelves filled with uh, Freud, Jung, Erickson, Otto Rank, just psychology and existentialist philosophy and people like Norman Mailer. Sure. Who are very psychological in their own way. So I never as a child in a teenage and a teenager ever could tell apart the Buddha from the psychologists, because to me, the Buddha was simply uh, expounding on ideas about what makes us suffer. Mm-hmm. And I never saw anything remotely spiritual in the sense of transmundane. Right. I always saw him as a giant in the field of psychology. Yeah. Who gave us practices to address our tendencies, our self-concepts, our beliefs about ourselves that cause us distress. Yeah. And so there was never any line between Buddhism and psychology. And to this day, a 56-year-old man, I do not see any line. I wish I could, but, uh, or no, I don't even know if I wish I could. I, I am as secular a Buddhist as a result as you can be. Sure. Yeah. So let's talk about then, I mean, that's a pretty interesting, you know, childhood right there. Not a lot of people I think can share that. Um, so let's talk about, what led you into, first of all, I, you know, if you're comfortable sharing what your drug of choice was, what led you into that? Was, what was the dissatisfaction or what was happening in your life that brought you to the path of um, addiction? My drug of choice um, was a wide variety of substances and alcohol. I started out with um, pot and LSD, which yeah. was in the air in the mid seventies. Yeah. And then to, I broadened out over the years to alcohol and eventually dabbled with everything from crystal meth to heroin. Sure. Um, my first detox was when I was in college at hospital detox at 18. Yeah. My last detox was when I got sober, uh, well, before I got sober, around 35. Yeah. Uh, right before. And um, must have been, sorry, 33. Sorry, <laughs> the, the, yeah. the exact date is. But anyway, um, it was a long ride. Why? 
Uh, there's a number of reasons. If you grow up in a family system where certain natural human emotions are not uh, mirrored and tolerated and given attunement, which means attention, then those emotions you will learn as a child to withhold them from other people. Sure. Because you you use as your your family system becomes a guide as to what to expect other people to behave like so right. if your parents are okay when you're funny and you make wisecracks like mine were they loved it when i kind of talked back they had but at the same time any so any form of disappointment was not allowed because they were immigrants and they were striving to be assimilated and disappointment in their child would be seen as a kind of crushing criticism of their success. Yeah, sure. So there were a lot of emotions that my dad didn't tolerate particularly well because his own mother didn't tolerate them. They tend to pass down that way. Yeah. First foremost was like anxiety. Uh, he liked men to be strong, confident, macho. Yeah. And strong, confident macho was never my forte. I was a little scrawny, awkward socially, overly, because of the family system, overly worried about, mm. you know, would other guys suddenly turn monstrous and violent like my father? Mm -hmm. So um, when you have emotions that in early childhood are deemed or responded to with shame or abandonment or contempt, then you learn to repress them. And at first you'll repress them using what Anna Freud called defense mechanisms, such as intellectualization, deflecting onto others, projecting, uh, sheer just changing attention to anything else but the feelings that are awkward. Yeah. But eventually, a lot of people use fantasy as well. Fantasy, like imagining yourself when you're 12, a rock star, so you don't have to feel your feelings of fear, anxiety, inadequacy, overwhelm. Yeah. Eventually, though, we become introduced to substances that suppress or repress, I should say, these emotions that we never learn to tolerate and connect with other people. Yeah. These emotions, like in my case, anxiety, awkwardness, uh, all fear. I learned that if you have, at 13, you, you drink three or four beers really quickly, and suddenly the fear isn't there anymore. So who wouldn't go for that? Yeah. Or you smoke pot, and you get a blast of serotonin, and... Your right hemisphere, serotonin levels raise. You don't feel as anxious anymore. Yeah. Or you, uh, alcohol actually works by GABA. It, it's like a clonopin in a liquid form. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, with the long-term effects, it's uh, it's kind of insane. Um, you know, looking back over my own life, you know, the... Uh, the little reprieve it gives, yet the negative over time, if you stay with it, that negative, just the pros versus cons list, you know, here's the pros and here's the cons. And yet, uh, 
you know, it, it gets kind of anchored into that reptilian brain and our midbrain, the emotional response. And uh, it, it can be very difficult for a lot of people. I mean, I speak from experience. I um, am in recovery too, of course. And um, I have suffered many relapses in my life. And um, over like the last 10 years, they got shorter and shorter. And I was able to pull myself out before I ended up in the psych hospital or a jail cell or an emergency room. And I attribute that to the practices, you know, to the meditation, to loving kindness, to all these different things that were taught, you know, to really cultivate a sense of self-love. And um, and aside from that, exploring where this root of suffering is coming from an exploration. I'm still very much involved in, you know, I don't have all the answers, but it's a work in progress. So, um, yeah, I, re- I can certainly relate to that. And, and so let me ask you in the past couple of months, a, a few people I've known, and this is unfortunately the same story for many, many years. Um, I've lost some friends to addiction. I'm sure you have too. And friends who have had a taste of not just sobriety, but real recovery, you know, like they got it. Like they were, they weren't just white knuckling it. They were recovering and yet they went back and, um, and it got the best of them. So, you know, when, uh, anyone that knows anything about relapse knows that it generally starts well before you pick up the substance uh, a general time frame I've often heard is like four months old behaviors start picking up and you start acting out in certain ways. So it happens before you pick up the substance and then you pick up the substance. Um, so I guess my question to you then is, you know, what, why do you think people return to these self-defeating behaviors even after they know that the destructive path that lies ahead Mm. well my suspicion is that we all have what i would call felt experiences like my own issues in childhood with anxiety do you hear that (laughs) nice i'm gonna see if i can uh close the uh window no worries. All right. So the question was, why do people or they, the thought was, why do people go out when they've seen real sobriety? And my, I was going to say, um, my suspicion is that there are certain felt experiences that stem from the stuff we replaced, we repressed early in our life, those feelings, those impulses, those uh, uh, desired behaviors that we never in sobriety trust and other people enough to disclose. Mm-hmm. There's a saying in <clears throat> sobriety, you're only as sick as your secrets. And I think essentially what we're saying is that the original cause of addiction is repressed feelings, emotions, tendencies, impulses that we learn from childhood will not be acceptable in our family, will be shamed, and therefore sure. we assume that everyone else will shame them. And so for a while we go to meetings and 
we share some of ourselves and we feel a relief because we're disclosing and disclosing always removes cognitive overload. The more you're trying to withhold, the harder your brain has to work. Sure. Um, but eventually, sometimes some people, even though they get a, a taste of sobriety, my, in my, the case of my friend Jake, who had, oh, uh, three years got off of, um, oh, um, like the, uh, methadone. And he was on a really high 160 milligram dose and went down over the course of six months to nothing. And he had two and a half years of sobriety and really relished life and was in a band. He had a car accident. Uh, and certainly there was some pain, but the, the feelings that it brought up of being sick and not... I think brought up um, experiences from his childhood when he was sick and not cared for and felt abandoned. Mm. He couldn't hold the feelings is my suspicion. And I could be wrong, of course. Sure. But he eventually uh, um, picked up and died. And uh, it's one of the most uh, horrible experiences in my life, getting that call. Yeah. So... <clears throat> It's my feeling, and I probably will ramble on about how uh, important disclosure is for me on so many different levels. Sure. Uh, but on the level of achieving long-term sobriety, whether it's in a meeting or with a sponsor or with a wise friend, as the Buddha called Kalyanamita, I believe the fundamental engine of sobriety is the ability to reveal inconvenient emotions and feelings that early on in life we felt we had to get rid of and thus used alcohol, mm. heroin, speed, cocaine. And then if you can reveal and talk about these feelings, then the need to repress them with fast-acting substances goes away or is alleviated. Sure. And in my own experience, um, I'm actually re-currently seeing a therapist because I've been like, you know, I found myself in a state of depression again, um, you know, and, and I know I needed that extra bit of help. Um, and he's wonderful, a, a, you know, fan of Gabor's who I know we both are mutual fans of, mm. but that leads me to think, and I'm curious about your thoughts on, you know, if you read Gabor or Bessel van der Kolk or Peter Levine, like they talk, um, about, you know, that, that saying the issues are in the tissues. So here we are talking on a cognizant level about our feelings and that's great. Like we're getting it out. Like you said, we're only as sick as our secrets. We're letting them go, but there's still these issues in the tissues or not. Like what's, what's, uh, how, how do you work with that? What's your, you know, what's your thoughts on that? Well, you know, Cognitive behavioral therapies are known as, you know, DBT, mm -hmm. narrative psychology are known as top down. Yeah. The idea is if you can change the way people frame experience and the stories they tell about themselves, then there'll be less suffering. And um, there's also this uh, sense of uh, 
Sorry, I'm really terrible with these earbuds. But uh, <laughs> there's um, another kind of therapy called therapies called bottom up, and they would be somatic experiencing, mm -hmm. like Peter Levine, the work of Bessel van der Kolk, and the body keeps the score. Yeah, is all about movement based, yoga based, somatic based, and the idea is. There's also what's called emotion-focused therapies by Leslie Greenberg. And, you know, interesting, before all these people, and after the Buddha, it was 2,500 years ago, and who basically said that change starts with what he called Vedana, or feeling. Mm. That's, where the, that's where you can interrupt the cycle of suffering. But there's an unknown hero in American psychology that only a few psychologists and know of. His name was Eugene Gendlin. G-E-N-D-L-I-N. And he had a practice called focusing, which was another word for bringing your attention, finding what's beneath the anxious thoughts, mm. and essentially be, staying with it, a la mindfulness, yeah. until you can experience a felt change while you hold the issue. that. So, for instance, suppose a job interview or uh, you know, going on a date terrifies you. You might hold the image, ask, how do I feel? Find the felt experience. Mm. And the felt experience eventually will be really uncomfortable. It will be those feelings that we repressed and are completely inconvenient with our social mask, the things we want other people to see. Right. You know, I want to be seen as smart and confident, but a lot of the times internally there are feelings that are deeply worried, uh, hypervigilant, and so forth at times. Sure. So um, the key is to, rather than try to repress all over again the felt experience, is to give yourself a way to be with it. Today, some forms of cognitive therapy try to bring it in, and in dialectical behavioral therapy, Marsha Linehan's work talks about distress tolerance, where you learn to find the physical distress and be with it. Mm. Um, so all of those works, Peter Levine shaking it out after a trauma, yeah. uh, um, you know, uh, they all, in essence, involve not trying to change the way we think to change our behavior and our but to to address the core feelings the embodied somatic experience right. and to learn how to soften around it breathe into it explore it hold it and even ask it what it needs to feel safe yeah in other some Therapists call this the inner child work, the idea yeah. that that felt experience is an inner child. And there's a lot to it because the uh, <clears throat> we know from the work of Alan Shore, who's another hero of mine, that early interactive experiences of the child are stored unconsciously in the right hemisphere mm. in a, an area called the orbital frontal. And that, to, throughout our entire life, never goes away. Those experiences are you know, deeply embedded. And the only way they can change is not by thinking, but by experience. Mm -hmm. So if, like me, you grew up in a family system where men were unsafe, 
and scary and unpredictable, the only way I can change is not by telling myself that, oh, men are not always unpredictable and scary and prone to violent behavior. I needed to go into therapy with uh, a wonderful Buddhist therapist, uh, Shoto, and he gave me the corrective emotional experience, the safe mm. male that I could talk to about my feelings, and he wouldn't essentially call me all kinds of uh, really unflattering words that used to be hurled at the uh, gay community. So, um, yeah, it was, you know, we can't change by thinking our way out of it. Right. We only can change by being with the feeling and having the corrective emotional experience with other people where they create a safe container for what was originally shamed and rejected and suppressed. Sure. Well, thank you for sharing all that. Um, certain things I can relate to things I've studied, things I've experienced firsthand. So it's nice to hear that. Um, and I'm sure it's beneficial to our audience. Uh, I certainly wanted to talk about, uh, your involvement with the against the stream Dharma punks movement. Cause I don't for lack of a better word, you're, you seem to be almost like the premier East Coast teacher. Um, you know, Noah's holding it down and he created it in the West Coast. And we have you here out of Brooklyn. And um, I would love to hear about how did you find Dharma Punks? Like, and against the stream, how did, you know, why did it resonate for you? What does it hold for you? And why is it such a passion for you to share? in that perspective with other people? I know I just gave you like 10 questions, but uh, go any any way you want with that. Well, it actually brings me to something that's very, very, very much on my mind today. Yeah. Um, first, I'll say I got into Dharma punks, frankly, because I've been hopping about, about Buddhist centers for much of my adult life. Certainly, the, I did the same thing my dad did, when I got sober, I immediately knew that the only, for me, practical uh, uh, spiritual path would be Buddhism. Mm -hmm. I just do not have the... Some people can believe in a god, and I'm just... Due to my mother's family's experience in the Holocaust and sure. her informing me very young that you know, there is no God. And if she believed it was a very compassionate thing to do. And I don't have any problem with it, frankly. But so I'm just not, I don't have any judgments of people who can believe in God. I think it probably makes you feel a lot safer when you approach, you know, death and things like that. But I don't have that luxury. I just do not have a God believing in it in me. So I was going around various Buddhist centers since 1996. And, of course, I had grown up in Buddhism and had done my studies in college in it and psych a lot of psychology. But I was really delving into it in a real hardcore way in 96. And then around 2002, I ran into Noah outside of what we'll just refer to as a meeting. I don't want to give it a specific, sure, you know, but uh, because we are anonymous. I'm not anonymous. Nor am I, but I I, I, res <laughs> I respect the respect. So yeah, and uh, <laughs> but anyway, Noah talked about uh, his views on Buddhism. I went, and the thing that immediately drew me to Dharma punks was the 
AA-like disclosure where you were expected to be real and you didn't give a Dharma talk like saying, you do this, you people are like this, you suffer because of this. You do it from the I, right. anxious I have. And you also can use we. But we start with disclosure, which is for me, um, I just wrote an article about this. Um, it's not yet up, but I think the fundamental uh, most important issue in Buddhist teaching today is the divide between those who disclose their significant emotional and psychological issues when they teach versus those that believe that their job is to present a calm, tranquil figure right. and not reveal the fact that they have difficulty in relationships not reveal that they have anxious attachment styles, not reveal that they um, have experienced in their life alcoholism and addiction, not reveal that um, they struggle at times with depression. Um, for me, it's an enormous disservice on every level for a teacher to present as if they are above human emotions, that they are above all human emotions, anger, fear, and sadness are entirely natural and they play a exceptionally important role in our survival. Anger tells us to confront injustice and it tells us to set boundaries in relationships where we're being mistreated. If you do not feel anger, you will not be able to set boundaries. Mm. People think they can think their way through and just set boundaries or confront injustice without ever feeling anger, but it doesn't happen in my mm. experience. I've been working with hundreds upon hundreds of people as a spiritual counselor for a very long time. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, disclosure also keeps this illusion idea in place that the person who goes to the Buddhist community and sits before a teacher believes, oh, this guy's transcended, he's over there, and I'm over here, there's something wrong with me. Yeah. And if you believe there's something wrong with you because you feel anger or sadness or fear, oh, I forgot to say that, yeah, the role of sadness is to grieve lost attachments, and the role of fear is to get us to exit difficult, challenging, dangerous situations to take care of ourselves. Right. So those are, every emotion has a point. Even disgust is an urge to expel something that isn't right for us. So uh, if, if a, a member of a community goes to a meeting and the person in front puts on this calm, you know, you know, sometimes yoga teachers have this entirely. Oh, possible. I know. Yeah. I'm so glad to see you. Yeah. It's nice to come in. And they're selling unconsciously this idea that you can be like this. But the truth is they are just presenting a social mask. Yeah. That is repressing all of the feelings that they feel are inconvenient. And if you do that, then you keep in place this rigid divide between the practitioner and the teacher. And there's always this sense when this, the practitioner experiences anger, they're like, oh, yeah. 
wrong with me? My teacher would never feel that. And it's all fucking BS. Because frankly, nobody transcends the basic natural human emotions. The best we can do is be with and use anger and fear and sadness and loneliness and uh, disgust. Use it skillfully. Yeah. So when we are angry, we don't vent it, we don't repress it, but we express boundaries. Yeah. Or we go and we confront injustice. Yeah. Anyway, there was my. So you met Noah and you had these experiences and um, now you're in New York City and you lead, you know, multiple groups a week. Um, you do your podcast. Can you tell me how that kind of came to fruition from meeting Noah in the first place? I wish there was any kind of a coherent narrative. Sure. Uh, but really, it just boiled down to being at the right place at the right time. Yeah. Uh, Noah is an amazing guy who, for some reason, as I look back on 2002 to 2005, when he was teaching here, uh, I was always the guy like at, trying to stump and ask the questions, like trying to find the hole in everything sure. he presented. And frankly, I, I mean, I was obviously very, I, I was raised by my dad to be very anti-authoritarian and to really distrust anybody who presents themselves as, and so I, even though Noah was clearly disclosing in his talks his own experience, but I still was trying to find something that was an air he was putting on or something that was trying to pull. Yeah, sure. And I, you know, I couldn't. I mean, he was always very gracious. But the, by far and away, the most amazing thing to me now in retrospect is that when he left in 2003, asked me and a good friend, Craig, to uh, hold the fort. And I think that in retrospect, um, uh, Craig, who's a great friend and who wound up moving to Los Angeles, uh, is an amazing teacher how exactly Noah found anything in myself other than a guy who was deeply suspicious of authority, you know, knew a lot of, to a degree about psychology mm. uh, and Buddhism. But really, most teachers, I think, would have said this is the, le the least likely candidate. And uh, but he went with it and he met with me frequently to give me preparation, but I was, you know, I, I basically just, just sat up. I just did a lot of preparation. I did at the beginning so much preparation. I was already, after 9-11, I was already going through a severe depression. Sure. And the only thing that was keeping me going during work was I was sitting and transcribing these Dharma talks that I listened to by people like Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Suchito and Ajahn Sundara. And I'd sit there to not lose my mind because I was so depressed and so beaten back and just uh, uh, in anguish. So I would just sit there in this closed little office just typing out every word that came out of their mouths. And then I would basically 
summarize them yeah. into big ideas and just go and just at first just so the first four years I was simply uh, representing you know essentially some of the big points in my own words mm -hmm. that I heard various Theravadans that I felt had a really psychological intuitive bend that I really admired Ajahn Viridhamma and so forth it was really, and then also there were people like Ajahn, Tan Jeff, Tanisar Bhikkhu, uh, and then um, when Tara Brock came around, she was very influential, enormously sure. influential. And so eventually, like, all of the ideas started blending with my own views of psychology and neuroscience, and they suddenly, it, I started then reading other stuff deep in the poly canon and just blend it with something that I found in D.W. Winnicott or mm. taking John Bowlby's attachment theory and blending it into the Buddha's concept of Kalyanamita or taking the Buddha's um, teachings on mindfulness and John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness, comparing them and then also looking at, again, people like Gendlin or somatic-based uh, therapists, and again, making these connections. And then over time, over the last 12 years, now I'm just, you know, wherever I am. Right. I, I don't even, I don't even know. I mean, my, my family system didn't prepare me very well for talking in public. I still get really anxious, really nervous. Um, but they did prepare me really, really well for being a an outsider, an outlier, someone who didn't really care. Yeah. If all, my, all the artists my dad venerated, Ornette Coleman in jazz, my mom's favorite writers, were never, you know, always successful. They didn't, my parents said, you know, you pursue yeah. your art and your ideas and you don't try to make them fit. So I had... I have an undue amount of confidence teaching things that other teachers, I'm sure if they listen to my talks, uh, they probably thankfully don't, but they would say, oh my God, this is just as much psychology as it is Buddhism or neuroscience as it is Buddhism. This is a, this is, this is not Buddhism and that's fine. That's great. I don't, I'm, I'm thrilled that I'm not just presenting another uh, in the stream, narrow stream uh, voice. I like to, to essentially present ideas that I think are not, you know, not that nobody is or not enough people are offering. Yeah. That, that makes me happy, you know, being somebody who's doing it a little differently yeah, man, that's what attracted me to you uh, years ago and why I've been a fan for a while now. Oh, so, yeah, I really appreciate your approach, your style, your authenticity and integrity to your message. It's um, I wish I saw more teachers with that. There are plenty of them, not to say there's not, but, you know, there's also plenty of teachers that don't have it. And we don't even need to have that conversation. <laughs> but um you know, I guess what I wanted to, to kind of finish with was to ask you 
So, you know, say someone's watching or listening to this conversation and they're struggling and it doesn't have to be drugs or alcohol, but, you know, there's a myriad addictions that human beings struggle with are suffering, whatever it is, you know, um, say that it, they're in that they're past the pre contemplative state to, and even contemplative. And now they're ready to move into the action state. Like what would you recommend? You know, do you have any advice for someone listening who's ready sincerely to make a change, um, but just doesn't know what to do next? Well, it certainly depends upon the fundamental underlying attachment style of the individual, by which I mean people who are avoidant by nature tend to be hypovigilant. They tend to tune out other people. They tend to be the ones that love going on 30-day silent retreats. They (laughs) want to do it by themselves. Right. Uh, But when you do, if you're a teacher and you lead a dyad where people share with each other at the end of a retreat, those are the ones who get really exasperated and don't reveal very much about themselves. Yeah. So avoidant people tend to need to move into finding and securing a, what the Buddha called again, a Kalyanamita, a wise spiritual friend. And the Buddha says that you don't get anywhere in the past without wise spiritual friends that you reveal yourself to. There's a famous sutta called the Half Sutta where Ananda says to the Buddha, is it true that wise friends are half of the path? And the Buddha says, don't say that. That's not true. Wise spiritual friends are the entirety, Mm. the foundation of the path. So if you think you can do healing in isolation, my advice is give up. Just give up. I mean, find somebody who's safe. If you haven't yet found somebody who's safe, put effort into it. Go to different meetings. Go to there are so many different places you can go. It doesn't have to be Buddhist. You could go to a Universalist church, a Quaker church. They're all beautiful. You could go to a synagogue. You could go to a twelve-step group of any stripe. It doesn't matter what name it has on the front. What matters is where people are being authentic, disclosing, revealing themselves and will listen and attune to you as you express Mm. your feelings. Now, some people are really, on the other hand, are anxious and they're really good at, or they're much better at sealing connections and talking about their feelings to others, but they're not very good at integrating body and felt experience as we talked about. For me, the big continuing ongoing journey for me, certainly after uh, a life of almost a lifetime, 45 years of interaction with Buddhism and 21 years after, 22 years after I started a uh, daily practice, is I still have to work diligently on developing concentration, interoception of the body, just putting the cognitive and the exteroception, worrying about the world away and just feeling in. That's an ongoing practice for me that when I'm anxious or activated, it's still my first impulse is to go to try to figure it out. Why do I, why is this scary? How can I make this go away? I'm still my first inevitable instinct, and I think it always will be my first impulse. But if I keep 
remembering to pull it back into the body, find the distress, create a safe container to it, talk to it, understand its needs, then for me, for anxious people I've worked with, I think that's a very fundamental. A third group is disorganized who have been abused. Mm. And those people really need to work with a trauma-focused therapy that's outlined yeah. in the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. He goes into all the different modalities, how they work, interviews. You know, everyone from people who use yogic therapy to use, uh, you know, movement therapy to use somatic experiencing and so forth. Yeah. So. I find that people who have been in traumatic experiences can benefit from that and mm. um, also from a whole new host of therapeutic modalities that are coming around. Beautiful, man. Thank you. So let me ask you, first of all, where can people learn more about you and your work? If you don't mind self-plugging, I feel we're doing it, but I'm going to ask because you do important stuff. Oh, well, thanks. I suppose that the best place is just going to the talks, which are on Dharma Punks. So that's Dharma Punks with an X, not KS, but X, NYC dot Podbean. You don't have to remember that. Just type in Dharma Punks NYC and the and, podcast will come up. And I'll link it up. So no worries. Yeah. Like we'll link or, it to the pages. Yeah. Just look up my name, Josh Corda. But that's like where I like to tell people to go. Um, the good folks, uh, wisdom publications for some reason took the enormous gamble on asking me to write uh, a coherent book, which I think they didn't know what they were dealing with. But <laughs> I managed to, uh, spew out something so that will be arriving in the fall it's called unsubscribe and it's really tr meant to be a companion piece to all of the great books like tara brock's radical acceptance that focus on accepting you know and how to open to life as it is yeah uh what i wanted to do was a book that pointed attention to the buddhist call that spiritual life requires great change as well you know changing the things we can right not just accepting the things we can change but changing the things we can and the buddha had you know three factors right livelihood right action right speech that and a lot of other uh admonitions in the the householder suttas about how we need to change our lives if we really want to find happiness. It's not just a matter of sitting on the cushion. Right. In fact, the original title is going to use was something like, don't just sit there, do something. But uh, that just felt kind of silly. So uh, I went with unsubscribe because that's kind of, that. you know, opting out of your life as it is and trying to do uh, and I, I go deeply into the psychology of what allows us to change, how we need secure people, how we need to prioritize our lives in accordance with a lot of the insights brought to us by baseline happiness studies and stuff like that. Well, that's super rad, man. And for those that are in the New York City area, um, where can they come see you teach live when and where? 
Uh, generally on Mondays in Greenpoint, it's in that lovely little area. Uh, I teach on Mondays at seven. Uh, and I teach on Tuesdays in Manhattan, at 302 Bowery at seven o'clock. So the one in Greenpoint is 97 Green Street at cool. seven o'clock on Mondays. All right, man. And yeah, of course. And you also do have a book out that I have somewhere on my shelves, Buddhist style, right? That's you that came out a while ago. Well, that's actually a funny story. I'll make it brief because I know yeah. you, you got to keep it under the a certain timeline. <laughs> but actually, so there was a wonderful uh, assistant professor, I think he was. I don't know what Otto's title. Um, but Otto was uh, teaching at Parsons and he came to the classes and he asked if I would do a series of uh, responses to questions he would ask. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the year, he would put it out as a Parsons would fund it and put it out as a little book. Yeah. Um, he printed out a whole bunch of copies. So it's basically his sending me questions through email, me responding. Yeah. And then our friend Jesse did this beautiful, weird art in it. Yeah. And then he published it or, you know, used, I guess, Parsons money to, print up, uh, you know, a thousand copies and he gave me a whole bunch. And so, uh, we decided because they were popular that we would put them up on Amazon if anybody wanted to buy them, but it's really not a Dharma book. It's more just, I loved me. it. It was me answering all, because I don't know anything about fashion, not the slightest thing. And he is a fashion theorist. Yeah. So the entire book is like, so what do you think? the underlying self that is built through fashion is. And I was like just fumbling for I, answers. Dude, see, I, I enjoyed it because it was a completely different take and I thought you handled it very well. Oh, and it was only you. like, I don't know if there's still any more available. I'm glad I have my copy, but it was what, like five bucks maybe on Amazon. So I we, was try, like, we don't, we don't make any profit and there it's as yeah. many, anytime anybody wants it, it'll always be available because it's oh, order by print. Order by know. print. Cool. Yeah. Damn it, I thought I had like some limited edition, but uh all right. Anyways, Josh, thank you so much for your time, man. This has been a real pleasure. I am in Connecticut, so I look forward to hopefully coming out and sitting with you sooner than later, seeing you in person. Um and just thank you for your continued work. It's much needed, much appreciated. You're doing really wonderful things, man. And uh this was a real treat and pleasure. So I thank you for your time tonight. Thank you, Chris, for your kindness, and thanks to the Indie Spiritualist. Hey. <laughs> All right, man. Be well, my friend. <laughs>